study on the life of Moses, and I want you, if you would, to turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 32. We're not exactly studying the book of Exodus, we're studying a lot of it in conjunction with our, our study on the life of Moses. We can't study his life without studying, you know, what God did in his life and through his life and how he grew him through the different trials that he went through. But I want to start in chapter 32, verse 32. And then we're going to go backwards a little bit. And we're going to look at this one sentence. It's pretty much going to be our focus of tonight. Exodus 32, verse 32. This is Moses speaking to the Lord on the mountain. Yet now, if thou wilt forgive their sin. And I don't know how it looks in your Bible, but I have this blank space right after that. There's no other sentence like it in the Bible, by the way. Yet now, if thou wilt forgive their sin, the sins of the people, he just leaves it blank. And if not, blot me, I pray thee, out of thy book which thou hast written. This is a mouthful, y'all. It's an incomplete, incomplete sentence, and yet I think we understand what his heart was, what Moses' heart was at this moment. And uh, it's, it's strange. It's almost like if you're here, listen to somebody play a beautiful. Uh, song on a violin and all of a string, sudden a string popped. You know, it just it wasn't finished. You knew that that's, that's pause shouldn't have been there, that moment of silence. And we have this sentence here, grammatically, I don't even know if it's correct, but biblically, it's exactly uh, what transpired. This is one of the things that I appreciate about God's Word. He doesn't, the Lord doesn't try to give us some fairy tale book. It's, you know what I mean? He, he shows the good, the bad, and the ugly. He shows something that's incomplete here. It's not even grammatically correct. You know, and yet we know it's genuine. It's authentic. Uh, it's what not wasn't written hundreds of years later, you know, or, or thousands of years later. Uh, Moses wrote this and recorded this. And he was going through a tremendous time right now and what he was pleading with God to do was almost, uh, I don't know, the weight of it is almost too, too much to imagine. And we're going to get delve into that sentence a little bit later. But I want us to back up now and read what was he talking about? What was Moses dealing with the people and with the Lord about at this time on the mountain? So look back at the beginning of the chapter. We're going to read verses 1 through 10. Exodus 32, 1 through 10. And when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down, out of the mount, the people gathered themselves together unto Aaron and said unto him, Up, make us gods, which shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we want not what is become of him. And Aaron said unto them, Break off the golden earrings which are in your ears, in the ears of your wives, of your sons, of your daughters, and bring them unto me. And all the people break off the golden earrings which were in their ears and brought them unto Aaron. And he received them at their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool after he had made it a molten calf. And they said, and they said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early on the morrow and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings and made 
And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go get thee down, for thy people which thou broughtest out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves and have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made them a molten calf and have worshipped it and have sacrificed thereunto and said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which have brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said unto Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my, my wrath may wax hot against them, and that I may consume them, and I will make of thee a great nation. Now we could keep reading the whole chapter, but I think we have the picture right here of what's going on. And most of us are pretty familiar with this story of the golden calf. The problem that was going on here that Moses was dealing with the Lord about at the end of the chapter, which we started with, was idolatry. Okay? It was idolatry. Uh, it was after the Lord had given the Ten Commandments, which was before this, okay? Uh, the great commandments He gave at Mount Sinai, the people were afraid. Remember, they, were, they wanted to stay down at the bottom of the mountain and what was taking place on the mountain. Remember, they had a big open plain, a desert. And so wherever they were encamped, they could see, even if they weren't close to it, they could see the mountain because it was in a flat plain. And on the mountain, there's a thick cloud and thunders and lightnings and the sound of trumpets and voice that they couldn't particularly probably understand the words. And Moses would go up there and they would say, Moses, you know, you... I'll read a scripture here. They said unto him, Speak thou with us and we will hear. But let not God speak with us lest we die. And so they wanted Moses to be their mediator. They wanted Moses to be their go-between. We like the miracles God's doing and everything, but we're afraid of Him. We don't know Him. Don't, you don't really see any desire for, in their, on their part to know Him like was in Moses' heart. They said, you be our mediator. You know, you gave us the law. You go up before the Lord. And so he went, he went up there for about six weeks. He went up there more than once, but at this time, and what we're reading in chapter 32, he had been up there for about six weeks. When he had originally gone, he took 70 of the elders and they went someplace, maybe a lower little section of the mountain. Okay, They didn't go up to the top with him, but they did. The Lord called him to get the elders and Joshua and 70 of the elders went uh, and saw some of the glory of God and they returned, but they returned without Moses because he had gone all the way up to meet with the Lord. And after a while, they began to get restless. Okay? They don't have any real genuine faith in God. They don't have any uh, trust in Him because they don't know Him. Again, they don't want to know Him. As far as they know, He did some nice things for Him and now He's gone. You know what I mean? There's no connection between uh, the promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're not laying hold on that promise like Moses was. And same for us. When God has made a promise, even if we wait a long time, if He has made it to us in His Word or into our heart of hearts and we know it, then we're to lay hold on that and we're to make a connection between the promise of God and the, the God who promised it. And we, where we see ourselves in that scenario. Am I the recipient of that promise? And we need to hang on to that. The, the people did not. And so they become uneasy. Where is he? Uh, we read it. As for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we want not, or we don't know what has become of him. And so what do they cry? 
up, make us gods which shall, which shall go before us. And so we're seeing really the first, we know that there was idolatry on the earth before this, okay? Because the land of Canaan was already filled with idols by this time. But this is the first real picture that we get to see. We saw like a false religion in uh, uh, Nimrod's day, right? Where they built the tower uh, to trying to reach heaven. But as far as real idolatry, we, we almost get a picture in, in just a few verses from how it first popped up in their hearts to the judgment that God sent them at the end of it. Where He grinds it to dust, right? And we're going to talk about this and makes them drink of it, mixes it with water and makes the idolatrous people drink from the water of their idol that's been ground up. We see like this quick scenario of it first popped up in their hearts to the judgment. All in one little snapshot. And it's an amazing thing uh, what, what was going on. And so most of the time when we think of, of idolatry, we do think of people bowing down before some, something physical. You know, something made with hands. Gold, stone, wood, and so forth. And then they would worship it as the idolaters would worship it as though it's God. Right? And... We're going to study uh, a little bit, just a little bit tonight about this idolatry because we're going to get back to Moses and what he's pleading with God to do, which we opened with. All right. And so one of the points about this, and I, I just doing a study on it, most of the time with idolatry, we don't see at the very first that it's not a desire to worship something else. It's a desire, a desire other, other than God, it's a desire to have something physical in His place, if that makes sense. Instead of just totally denying God, period. Okay? Actually, that happened in Ahab's day. Wait, many, many, many years later, Ahab and Jezebel totally denied the Lord and forsook God and openly proclaimed, we worship Baal. Okay? So that happened in Ahab's day. But what we see... Here and oftentimes is people of God, and and instead of just totally forsaking Jehovah, they wanted something in place of Jehovah. It's idolatry nonetheless, okay? But we're seeing this is really how it got started. And part of human beings uh, to, to have something physical. And I can tell you, you know it from your own lives we would attest to this fact, it's much easier for somebody to see something, a shrine, a, a temple, uh, a person, you know what I mean? A, a painting, a statue, and to go and identify with that rather than to seek the unseen God. You know it from your own experience. Now we've gotten used to seeking the Lord and we know what it's like to worship God and walk with God and pray to God and hear from God. But still, it, there's nothing uh, easy about it in the sense that we don't see Him. It's not just like we get to church, this building. What if our church met under an oak tree? You know, in the middle of a cow pasture. Wherever we were, there's nothing special, so to speak, about that place other than God's people are gathered there and He promised to be with His people. It's hard to see, especially hard for people who don't have faith, okay, to seek the unseen unseen God. They would rather have an object right there that they can all rally around or touch 
or look at or say, isn't that beautiful or, or whatever. And we see it. We see it uh, in all kinds of religions. In, in Judaism or in the history of the Israelites, we see the golden calf right here. But you remember when the Lord uh, later, and we're going to study this in this book, that when the people were getting bit by serpents because they're complaining and murmuring and they were dying and getting sick and, and the Lord commanded Moses to make the, the serpent and put it out of brass and put it up on a pole and lift it up. Whoever looked upon the serpent was healed. And later, I mean, we know that was a picture of Christ being lifted up. He who knew no sin becoming sin. Lifted up on the cross. He even said it. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. But what was that object that was taken, they, they later turned that into an idol and worshipped it. They turned the stick with the brass serpent on it. Rather than looking unto the Lord, that later became an idol. That thing. And so we know that people would rather have a rosary and something in their hand or a scapula hanging around their neck or, or like I said, a cathedral to go to, or a crucifix in their hand, uh, or serpent up on a staff. They would rather have something because it's hard to seek the unseen God. We have to have faith, right? And the Bible says now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. The just shall live by faith. It is a walk of faith. The Bible also makes a promise to us that faith will end in sight. One day we're going to see the Lord and He will be in our, our midst, right? And we'll see Him face to face. Even Job knew this. He said, after worms eat this body up one day, I know my Redeemer lives and I will stand before Him on that last day and I will see Him face to face. I will. He had to know all that by faith. And anyway, we see kind of the essence of, of idolatry here. It was only three months since they had stood by the Red Sea and it, God had parted it for them. Just three months. And they watched Pharaoh's armies drowned there. It was, they, get, they received bread from heaven every day. This is in that three-month span from when they came out in great, with the great hand of God and they're worshiping before a golden calf. All right? Three months. And in that period of time, God did miracle after miracle. Brought them out, drowned Pharaoh's army. Uh, manna coming down daily as much as they could eat every day, fresh manna. Uh, a, a rock that followed them in the wilderness, out of which flowed water for all them and all their cattle and everything to drink. And plus, what else did they have? They had the pillar. We always talk about the cloud by day. And, and some think it even provided shade or protection from the, the sun out in the desert. And at night, like a, almost like a watchtower, this flame in their camp. A nice big night light, you know, and there was a safety. So he had not abandoned them. And even while this was going on, while they're making the calf, okay, still they can see on the mountain the clouds and the thundering and the lightning. All that's still going on. God was there. And yet they still, their human hearts, still wanting something tangible. Okay? It's like Micah, if you've ever read about that in the book of, of Judges, and his mother wanted to build up, uh, had money she had dedicated to the Lord, she said, 
to make a shrine, some kind of little idol to worship, and she, she wanted to dedicate it to the Lord. But yet it was idolatry. Okay? The first and greatest commandment is that thou shalt have no gods before me, right? And so initially, I don't think they put another God. They didn't reject Jehovah, but they did definitely break the second commandment. And I'll read it to you. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them. Okay? So we can't say that they totally rejected Jehovah. They did, but I mean, it's clear, very clear that they broke the second commandment and built this, uh, this idol. And then we see how the people were degraded or how the people sank. And I've often thought about this and I, I, I see in the scripture that you don't read that there's a, a bottom point that somebody can bottom out at. Have you ever thought about that with sin? It's like, well, Hitler's about as low as a person could go, right? Who gassing, putting the Jews in the gas chambers and the things that they did to them. Uh, you, you think that's about as low. There's not a low point. I don't believe there's a low point. I think people without God can sink and sink and sink and sink. And I don't know what the bottom depth of that morality or immorality would be. But these people degraded themselves and uh, so there's no doubt from the scriptures, it doesn't give us a whole lot of detail, but it gives us enough to know that uh, when they came before this golden calf, that there was all kinds of uh, fornication and, and things like this. It says they were naked and so forth. And I'll, I'll read it, read it from, from the King James. The people sat down to eat and drink because there was a feast unto the Lord, quote, before the golden calf. Alright? Unto the Lord. We know it was not really to the Lord. He had no part in that. But the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. The revi another version, another translation of the Bible says, uh, Moses saw that the people were broken loose, for Aaron had let them loose for a derision among their enemies. So what, what we see here is that there was like a, there was no restraint. Restraint is a good thing. I'm not talking about being bound up and chains to sin. I'm talking about the restraint of the Holy Spirit. And we've talked about it before. When the church is raptured, for example, which could be tonight. It could be in our lifetimes. When the church is raptured, what has held, it says in 2 Thessalonians, only he that now withholdeth will hold until he's taken out of the way. So there's a restraint. By far, we could not say that a majority of Human beings are believers. On the earth, they're not. I don't know what percentage, but it's not a majority. But still, there is a restraint, isn't there? There's, there are wicked things happening all over the place, but it's not just total chaos. When you drive that interstate, somebody might be going too fast. Somebody might be texting and not paying attention and cause a wreck. But it's not total chaos. It's not like the Indianapolis 500 and people go in different directions on the same lanes. You know what, I'm just using driving as an example. It's not total chaos. But when the church is taken out of the way, I believe that, when it, that restraining of the Holy Spirit within the body of Christ on the earth is going, going to be absent. 
there is still a fear of God, even though people have very little fear of God. There is, we have fear of God, right? Your children at school have a fear of the Lord. They're not just going to do anything because everybody else does it. And so there is a restraining. And he's, the, the picture here, the word picture here, is that Moses saw that the people were let loose. They weren't let loose like out of cages to run, you know, 50 miles this way and 50 miles that way. Whatever morality they had, whatever fear of God they had. And I never really read it like that before. When it says they sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play, it's really talking about there were, there were the restraints were taken off of them. Or they felt like they were anyway. So they could go and do what they wanted to do, so to speak. It was already in their hearts, but because maybe a fear of God and a fear of Moses, the man of God, uh, they were restrained from doing it. So I just want you to picture that. But here, there was no restraint. It's like the restraint was slackened or it was lessened. All right, if that's a word, it was decreased. And now we see what happens. This is what happens to people without God. This is what happens to people when they cast off the restraints. We've started, it's, it's never, there's never been a time in history since Adam and Eve sinned that there hasn't been this type of thing. But you see it in societies more at certain times. If you've studied the history of this country, a lot of people can trace it back to the early 1960s, you know, where, where there was this casting off, God is dead, headline in the newspaper or something, or Time magazine. Well, God's not dead, but they wanted to consider Him dead. So they could experiment with every drug, every uh, physical kind of thing they wanted to, try different religions, new age, transcendental meditation, whatever, uh, living to pe with, with people before you're married to them. That's, that's not new. None of that's new. But as far as society saying, this is what we're going for, there, this is basically saying there's no restraint. And so, God has to bring a judgment upon this. Or He's not God. Okay? And so, this is what Moses is, is dealing with. There's a couple of things going on here. God had just recently given them the Ten Commandments. They had broken one or two of them. Right here. Probably more, but we know of two that are glaring. Alright? And so, he, he says, Thou shalt not. He can't watch them do this and not do anything about it. You understand that? He has His great name at stake. He's not permissive. We talk about it all the time. Men are permissive. I always give the example. Uh, somebody's got a teenage uh, child you know, that's driving. You've got to be in by 11. And they come in or, or else. You know, we take the keys away from you. They come in at 11.30 or 12 and the parents just act like they're sleeping and don't, don't want to fool with it. They don't take the keys away. They either pretend like it didn't happen or don't let it happen again. You understand what I'm saying? That's leniency or permissiveness. That's not mercy and grace. God is gracious, but the sin has consequences. That's a law, okay? That's a law. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death, James says. That doesn't change because we want to pretend like it doesn't. 
And so God has to deal with sin. Or He's not the God of the Scriptures. And He's not the God of many modern day Christian pastors and authors and so forth. Um, but there was something else at stake here too. He had to, he had to back His law or that people would think His law is not worth keeping, right? He gave us these Ten Commandments. We know what they are. And we broke them. Nothing happened. We got away with it, right? His laws aren't worth keeping. But they are worth keeping. And we know no one can perfectly keep the law without God. You know, no man is, is justified by the keeping of the law. And no man has perfectly kept the law other than Jesus Christ. But the laws are still good. The laws themselves are good laws. Okay? But anyway, so he has to be true to his nature of being a holy, righteous God. He can't just pretend like it didn't happen. Well, we'll let it go this once. They're bowing down before an idol. Okay? But also, Moses was concerned that uh, if he destroyed the people, that it would be a blight on God's character as well. Because think about it, Moses was always worried about, not worried about, always concerned about God's testimony. So Moses is thinking, wheels are turning. He's a holy God. This is going to have to be dealt with. All right? But yet at the same time, if God just comes down, zaps them, and they're all dead, the whole nation is dead, what about, what are the Egyptians going to think? Moses actually thought about this and talked to God about it. The Egyptians are going to think, you're really like this cruel God and brought the people out here to kill them. That's not what you brought them out for. And what about your covenant, your promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that you were going to bring them into a land that they would inherit, multiply their seed, and they would inherit it forever? What about that promise? So this is going on. So what is he going to do? What is God going to do? What would be the right thing for God to do? They have to be dealt with because of their sin, but yet His testimony uh, and His promise and His covenant to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to bring them to the promised land. So this is what's, what's going on when He goes up uh, onto the mountain. And Moses is about to, to really offer an unbelievable price on behalf of the people. It's a picture of Christ. It's not a perfect picture because only Jesus is perfect in that. And in any of the types and shadows and you know, illustrations from the Old Testament, they can only go so far. Christ perfectly fulfills it. But he's, he's about to test his servant. And I'm going to jump way ahead. The Lord is making Moses something. And he's making him something special. Okay? By faith. He's making him this intercessor. He has given him an intercessor's heart. Remember a few weeks back we talked about it? How we'd sit before the people all day long and everybody that had a cause or an argument with another Hebrew, they would bring him to him all day long. And they had a question. He would go to God and he'd come back all day long. He already had an intercessor's heart, but this is taking it to another level. What, what he's about to offer. And so, the Lord is testing him to prove him, to try him. He does that in all of our lives. 
And we can see such wonderful examples. We look at everybody you turn to. You turn to Abraham and study his life. You'll find how God tested him. You turn to Jacob's life. You'll find how God tested him. David, anybody you turn to, you're going to find that God tested them. I'm going to give you a real quick, it's not a study on, on testing, but there's a huge difference between Satan's temptations in your life and the testings of God. They're both testings, all right? One of the words for temptation is test. And Satan comes, what is his desire when he tempts us? He has nothing good in mind for you. Satan wants you to fall. He wants you to be swallowed up in sin, to turn from God, to utterly fall into the sin, and to take that immoral character trait or whatever it is and make it permanent in your life. He wants you to fall in that sin and not recover. He came to steal, kill, and destroy. God tests, and He tests not to produce something evil or to draw something evil out of your life, but to draw something good out of your life or to produce something good in your life or to refine the gold that's already there. We've been refined in the fire of affliction that your faith may come through as pure gold, Peter says. And so God, there's two different things in mind. Satan wants to bring that evil thing out and you give yourself over to it and that's the new you. It's permanent. God wants to produce something good in us that might have been lying dormant, okay? That He has planted in us and then make that permanent. A permanent character trait in our lives. Faith. Patience. Love for the brethren. Love for lost people. A heart that weeps for the lost. He wants to test me and prove me and bring that out and make it permanent in me. Okay? So remember that. And so, here's Moses. And he was going up to act as intercessor for the people. Moses besought the Lord as God. Turn from thy fierce wrath. I'm reading some portions that we didn't read for time's sake. And repent of this evil against thy people. Okay? Uh, God had said to him, let me alone. Did y'all notice that? We read it, I think, in verse 10. Let me alone, Moses. How can a man be bothering God? Because God had made Moses this intercessor. And the intercessor's up on the mount. And he's interceding for the people. And the Lord says, now I'm going to wipe them out. I'm going to judge them for their sin. They're stiff-necked. They're rebellious. And I want to start a new nation over with you, Moses. Well, that's quite an offer. You know what I'm saying? A lot of people say, okay, God, if that's what you want to do, I'm on your side. I'm, all I want is the will of God. You know, That's what you want. But God was testing him. What ended up happening is what God wanted to happen all along. He wanted an intercessor. We know that through the Bible. It's a picture of Christ. He wanted an intercessor. Intercessor to the point of laying Himself down for sinful people. Moses wasn't perfect, but in this picture, remember it's just a picture, he would be the just one to lay down his life for the unjust. He needed a Savior too. There's a difference between him and Jesus. But in, the, in our illustration, turn from your fierce wrath. Okay? And there is the judgment of God was literally just hanging over the people and they didn't even know it. They rose up to play. 
They're having their orgies. They're having all their stuff going on. They rose up to play, and the judgment of God is literally a breath away from them, and they don't even know it. Isn't that something? No different from people today. They're a heartbeat away from hell. Right now, today, people are, and they don't even know it. Oblivious to it. Pop another cold one and drink my beer. You know what I'm saying? Oblivious to it. And here's Moses. He knew it. He knew what God had already purposed to do. So what is he doing? He's laying down. He's not letting God go. Let me alone, Moses. No, Lord, I'm not going to let you alone. God wanted him to do that. You know that? He's looking for an intercessor. He's looking for an intercessor's heart. He wants that. The Lord has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. We know that from the Scriptures. He has pleasure that people would repent. He has pleasure in giving mercy. has pleasure in people turning for their sin. has pleasure in forgiving sins. He has no pleasure in bringing, even though it's just punishment, He has no pleasure in meeting out that judgment to sinful people that He created in His own image. His pleasure comes when men turn from their sin and repent. And in this instance, He had pleasure, I believe, in His man Moses standing before him and beseeching him in this way. So he's heading down. The, he's pleaded with God. God says, um, it says, and the Lord repented of this evil. He didn't repent in the sense that we repent of sin. It means he changed. He changed because of the intercessor. Moses interceded. If there hadn't been nobody to stand in the gap, I believe God would have just gone and done it. Okay? But he had his man. And the Lord repented, not in the sense that we repent of evil. He repented and changed and didn't do what He was going to do because of Moses. Alright? And so, Moses is now heading down the mountain. He still hasn't seen what's going on. He's been with the Lord. The Lord told him, the people have corrupted themselves down there. And I want to wipe them out and make a new nation of you. He pleads with God. He goes down. At some point, he gets close enough down the mountain. He's overlooking a ledge. And he sees actually the calf and what's going on. And in his anger, now remember, he's just stood in the gap for the people. The anger had hit the Lord, and now it hit Moses. He's angry now. And he already knew what was going on, but when he saw it with his own eyes, he was furious and angry. And he threw the Ten Commandments, the tables of stone, he threw them down the mountain, and they just shattered and smashed into a million pieces. And he sees Aaron down there and and he, he gets to the bottom and he, his indignation was just over the top. Okay? And he has this reaction. It says, Moses' anger waxed hot and he cast the tables out of his hands and break them beneath the mount. And when he reached the camp, uh, we don't have time to read it all. What did he do? He, he, sma- he commands that the idol be smashed. Okay, and ground to powder, thrown in the fire. I don't know how exactly that all took place, but it said thrown in the fire, so the idol was destroyed. Then it was stamped to powder, to dust, maybe beat with hammers, I don't know what. Then he took it and put it in the water that the people drank, and he said, drink from this. Alright, he's making them drink of that cup of, of their idolatry. And then at the hands of the tribe of Levi, he says, everybody that's... Who's ever on the Lord's side, come over here. And the Levites, Levites came and some others. And then whoever just continued on in their idolatry, 
you that are on the Lord's side, and this must have been very difficult. I don't know that we think about it sometimes. You, you get your swords and go kill them. Can you imagine? This is their brothers. This is my neighbor Joe. You understand what I'm saying? We raise cattle together or sheep together. This is my cousin. This is my in-laws. Some were on the Lord's side and some continued in the idolatry. Get your swords and go kill them. That's not an easy thing to do. But they did. They did what they were supposed to. 3,000 people died. And uh, you have sinned a great sin. But see what happens the next day. Now the people are mourning about the people that died. The next day the people are sorrowful about that. They're uh, maybe starting to feel something about their sin. Hopefully. Okay? And, and Moses says, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. This is key. This is verse 30 if you're still in chapter 32. You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up unto the Lord. Peradventure. He didn't even know if it would be acceptable. Peradventure, maybe. I shall make an atonement for your sin. Somehow or another, this man knew about atonement. Okay? I... Peradventure, I can make an atonement for your sin. Well, he couldn't. He himself was a sinner. He needed an atoner for his own sin. But we see the heart, right? And we see the picture of one just dying for the unjust. And he didn't even know if that would be accepted. And the people had no clue what he was going to offer. He didn't say, I'm going I'm to lay down my life for y'all. He just says... I'm going to go up per adventure. I can make atonement for your sins. Moses knew what he was about to do. He had it in his mind and in his heart. It's a long journey up that mountain. He had a lot of time to think about it. He knew what he was about to do. Okay? And he knew the consequences to himself if, if this would happen. Per adventure. Okay? He didn't even know if it would be accepted. But... He goes up before the Lord and, and we started with this sentence and Moses confessed the people's sin to God and he said, yet now, verse 32, if thou will forgive their sin. And my Bible has this like hyphen or this dash and a little blank spot there. I couldn't finish the sentence for him. I don't think anybody could finish the sentence for him. Yet now, if thou will forgive their sin and if thou will forgive... I don't know what he would who would have filled in there. You know, I'll worship you forever. Uh, whatever. You'll be such a gracious God, a kind God. I don't know. But he's willing to lay down and if not, blot me, I pray thee, out of that like book which thou hast written. The people didn't even know what Moses was offering. And he went up there on their behalf. Sinful people and he's saying, you stay here. Now I'm going to go up and see if I can make atonement for your sins if you're spared. And they're like, great, Moses, go for it. You know, they don't even know what he's thinking about doing. Whatever. You know, that's nice. And yet he's got in his mind laying down his life for this sinful people. They really had no respect for Moses himself. They had no... Somebody better came along, they'd have followed him. You know, there was no real attachment to God. 
and no real attachment to Moses other when he other than when he was benefiting them or they needed him for something. And yet he's going up there and uh, blot me out of your book. Some people when I'm studying, is that the book of life? Okay, it's where he's in hell forever. Is that the a book that he had written about uh, the inheritance of who's going to go into the promised land physically? I don't know. But I know that it was an amazing offer that he made to intercede for the people. Mo, uh, Paul said, I could wish myself accursed from Christ Jesus for my brethren, my kin, kinsmen in the flesh. I could wish. And he's saying, and I, I don't know, it's very similar to that to me. If you, all my, the nation of Israel, would come to Christ and be born again, accept your Messiah as payment for your sins and as your Savior, I could wish myself accursed from Christ for that to happen. He didn't point blank ask it, but he is showing his heart. I don't think he was lying. And I don't think he was trying to make himself look good. I think he meant that. I could wish myself accursed from Christ Jesus. And so, again, this was thoughtful on Moses' part. We're about to, to close. But he was prepared to accept the consequences had God accepted his offer. All right? And if he would, God would have accepted anybody's offer, it would have been Moses. All right? As far as a human being goes. But he did not. Uh, he did not accept the offer. And what we do see is God's heart. As I said in the beginning, this is what the Lord wanted all along. It was a test. It was a test like Abraham offering up Isaac. I'm just seeing if you really would do it. I want you to see that. I want you to lay down your life, Isaac, Abraham, to see if you'll really do it. And then to make that trait, that quality permanent in his life from that test. And it was. He gave Isaac to the Lord and God had the man's heart, Abraham. Isaac didn't have his heart. God had his heart. And same here for Moses. God did not accept the offer, but it must have really touched the Lord. It must have really moved the Lord towards Moses in a good way. This, this is really wonderful what he's doing. Offering himself up like this. And again, it spoke of a picture that uh, a scene that would be played out 2,500 years later, I believe, or 3,500 years later on Calvary where the Son of God undertook by Himself to purchase the redemption of man, to make atonement for the sins of the whole world. By Himself. No helper. He had disciples and they all fled when He was arrested. No helper. His own right arm got him the victory, the Bible says, by himself. And he was that intercessor to make atonements by the shedding of his own blood, the just for the unjust. Jesus Christ has a wonderful picture. Offer was not accepted in Moses' part. Uh, no one can atone for his own sin, much less the sin of others. And so God uh, dealt with it. The passing of their... Uh, the, the way that the Lord was able to forgive them. Remember he said he was kind of like, how would God do this? If he didn't judge him, then he wouldn't be faithful to his holy, just nature and his law. If he wiped them all out, then what about his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? And what would the heathen say? 
And how did He do it? He forgave them based upon a coming Savior. He forgave them based upon one who He knew, the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world, would one day make atonement for their sins. He forgave them on those grounds. On the merits of Christ thousands of years before Christ came. Because God had promised him. And he was, he was coming. And so I've got two scriptures I want to read as we close. First of all, I want to just mention, people think that the God of the Old Testament is somehow different than the God of the New Testament. The God of the Old Testament was simply a God of laws and just judgment and anger and wrath and killing people. But when you, as somebody that does not know the Bible, because he doesn't know the Lord, he says, I'm the Lord, I change not. Therefore, you sons of Jacob are not consumed. It's because I'm, I'm the way I am and merciful that you're not consumed. All right? The grace and truth in its fullness, in its fullness came through Jesus Christ. But he's always been a God of grace and mercy. He had a law, they broke the law, but they didn't all die, did they? He forgave their sins based upon one who did die for their sins. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission. But he saw one who was going to shed his blood for the, their sins way back here. And so, there, God was merciful, I guess was the point I wanted to make. And is merciful all through the Bible because he changes not. Two scriptures. Turn with me, if you would, to Romans chapter 3. You know, we did our little, I think, three-part series recently on forgiveness of sins and uh, let's let's look at this is a you know are believers forgiven past present and future and all that that little study let's look at this first because we we looked at it then romans three twenty five. speaking of jesus christ in verse 24 verse 25 says whom god had set forth to be a propitiation that's an atoning victim god had set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission, that means forgiveness, of sins that are past through the forbearance or the patience of God. I don't understand it totally, but I do understand that that payment, he said it all, that the payment of Christ in his blood, he set him forth to be the propitiation for the sins of the world. Who is it? It's Christ. You don't have to look around. It's not a lamb or bull or a goat, it's Jesus. And for sins that are past. Okay? And so, uh, one more scripture in Hebrews chapter 9, and we'll close. We studied the book of Hebrews when our church first started. Went through it verse by verse. But let's look at this, chapter 9, verse 12. Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by His own blood He entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctify the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And again, we just see this with a picture of Moses. You can come. That... This is what God, we're closing with this thought, this is what God was desiring to bring forth through the man's life. Nobody could atone for other sins except Jesus. 
but that heart that was willing to intercede, that heart of Paul uh, and of Christ that was willing to lay down for the for the behalf of the people. God was looking, has always been looking for an intercessor, someone that will stand in the gap. Okay? It's a good thing, it's a wonderful thing. And this is just one more lesson or test in the life of Moses that he passed, that God brought him through. It's what God was after all the time. And I just thank the Lord for his mercy. Let's just take a few moments here tonight to thank the Lord for his mercy, to think about the great salvation that we have through Jesus offering up, God offering up His only Son, Christ laying down His own life for our sins and the sins of the world.